and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. A civil war, for now a war of words, is raging in Israel over the first big legislative steps proposed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new government. Opposition leaders and legal figures are calling the plan unveiled by Justice Minister Yariv Levine to reform and transform Israel's judicial system as being no less than regime change and a coup. Former Supreme Court President Aaron Barak says it will leave Israel with only one branch of government and a crippled Supreme Court, he says, will leave citizens with no defense against the removal of any and all of their rights. Levine has shot back that Barak was the one who, quote, destroyed democracy by negating the will of the people when he dramatically expanded judicial powers in the 1990s. We've been discussing the brewing crisis over the power of the court on this podcast with Israeli experts over the past few weeks, but now it's time for a view from afar. Benjamin Witties is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and one of the most respected commentators on legal affairs in the U.S. His big claim to fame is sitting at the helm of the blog Lawfare, a must-read for anyone who's anyone in the legal world in the U.S., particularly as it relates to security matters. Ben is also a frequent visitor to Israel and very familiar with the Israeli legal system, so he is the perfect person to take a look at what's going on here from the perspective of U.S. officials and American Jews. Hi, Ben. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that very kind and excessive introduction. <laughs> so just for fun, I went back and I looked at an interview you did with Haaretz in 2019. It opened with you saying, quote, whereas the U.S. will be rid of Trump one day with its legal institutions intact, Israel's balance of powers may be left permanently off kilter post Benjamin Netanyahu. So how does it feel to be so prophetic? You know, Haaretz caught me at an optimistic moment at that time about the U.S. There were dark days when I was afraid we would never be rid of Donald Trump. So I'm delighted to have been interviewed at a moment when I was uh, in a in a position to be right rather than holding my head in my hands. So since that interview in 2019, a lot has happened. Netanyahu was already in legal hot water then, but he was too politically unstable to really make any moves to undermine the power of the judiciary. Then he was out of office for a year, but now he is back and stronger than ever. And his first big move as prime minister with a stable majority is to dramatically weaken the judicial system in a way that he claimed to oppose a decade ago. So obviously, everyone thinks this has to do with him being on trial. But there are also signs that members of his government are even more committed to this plan than he is. And as part of the wave of right-wing populism that got him into office and seems to be a trend across the world. Is this unique to Israel? Is this part of something global? How do you view what's going on here now? So it is certainly not unique to Israel. There are, you know, that the reform of the judiciary in the United States, which has taken a different form uh, for reasons we can talk about, has been a conservative obsession for many decades now. Uh, and some of the language associated with it is very similar. In addition, if you look at what the ruling party in Poland has done, you know, there are some similarities uh, with respect to its moves toward the judiciary, toward what the Netanyahu government is now proposing. So it's definitely not unique to Israel. What is unique to Israel 
and what makes Israel, I think, particularly vulnerable to this kind of populist machination is the odd constitutional or non-constitutional structure against which it's taking place. That is, Israel has a court that is at once uniquely vulnerable to this sort of uh, uh, legislative change, but also unusually powerful. And that combination is, I, I think, a very explosive one and has definitely contributed to the generation of this crisis. In the 2019 interview, Ben, I will quote you as describing the Israeli system as being super weird. I don't know if that's a technical legal term. Yeah. So let's let's pinpoint two aspects of the weirdness. One is the one that everybody talks about, which is that there is no written constitution. And so all of the constitutional arrangements are amendable by the Knesset with a mere majority vote. And here I don't mean a 61 vote majority like the proposed override, but a majority of whoever happens to be present can change a, a basic law. And that is, if you think about that in contrast to, say, the United States, it's when the Supreme Court of the United States makes a First Amendment ruling, it would require a constitutional amendment to change it. And that requires a majority of both houses, uh, and uh, sorry, two-thirds of both houses, and then three-quarters of state ratification. So it's a, you know, a dramatically difficult thing to amend the U.S. Constitution. By contrast, to amend the Israeli non-constitution is a relatively trivial matter and happens all the time. On the other hand, and this is the vulnerability, this and this is the feature, the weirdness that people don't talk about the Israeli Supreme Court with respect to as much, it is a uniquely powerful institution. It has not just the authority of judicial review, uh, which a lot of countries have a judicial review mechanism, but it is the court of original jurisdiction over any challenge to the lawfulness of government policy with no standing requirements and almost no barriers to adjudication. So you don't like who's been named cabinet minister, you file a petition in the Supreme Court. You don't like the route of the the separation barrier, you go straight to the Supreme Court, right? So all of these fights that in other judicial systems would play out in the, in the political process in the first instance, and then only get to court adjudication after years of policymaking, start out with litigation in Israel. And I think that puts the court in the firing line of politics in a way that's unusual. I mean, I think the court in Israel is more contentious right now, even than the court in the United States. So the court has a huge amount of power, and basically this proposal wants to take away almost all of its power. We're talking about you know a zero-sum game here, right? Right. So it, it has a huge amount of power. The foundation of that power is paper thin. And so it's like you've built this, this giant you know, this giant weapon, um, which you can think of as a, if you hate the court as an offensive weapon, or you can think of if you're 
a, a defender of the court as a defensive weapon, but it's extremely powerful. But it's built on a pillar of sand. I mean, if you think about it, the court itself is is merely a creature of the Knesset. The Knesset could abolish it if it wanted to. And so there's this, it, it's this very strange interaction between a, a kind of system of almost pure or maybe pure parliamentary supremacy and a, a court that reserves for itself and that the political system has allowed it to have these really unusual uh, uh, authorities to intervene in government policy. So when you've got this growing, small, but now powerful group of ideologues who visit Washington and, and meet with the Federalist Society and really have a very strong ideological bent, um, and they're, they're in a system in which the political uh, echelon is allowed to take away the court's power, and now they're in political power, it's kind of inevitable, right, that this is going to be something that, uh, that is high in their priority list and that they're going to do. It's, it's easy pickings. I think that's right. I do think the the purported marriage uh, with American judicial conservatives is almost entirely fictitious, not in the sense that it hasn't happened, but that it's 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 kind of a lot of legal nonsense. The Israeli legal system is entirely different from the American legal system. And to the extent the court has behaved this way, it has behaved this way with Knesset tolerance over a long period of time, whereas the U.S. Congress, uh, the states that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, has sometimes been sort of imperious towards, they don't really consent to the court's engagement with them that way. So I think when Israelis talk about judicial activism in the language of American conservatives, that's a very specious con comparison. And the concept, I think, makes a great deal more sense in the American context than it does in the Israeli context. So turning to the content of the uh, reform uh, proposals for a moment, the big ticket item, obviously, is the override clause, which would allow the Knesset to nullify high court decisions by a simple majority of 61 votes in the 120 seat parliaments. We've done a whole podcast on the uh, override clause with uh, Yaniv uh, Rosnai a few weeks ago. But how does it look through American eyes that Israel is on the brink of making its court completely subject to the ruling political majority? It's a really interesting question. I don't have a problem in principle with the idea of an override clause. A lot of countries have them, including the United States, by the way. You know, ours is particularly onerous. It requires amending the Constitution. But the ability to amend the Constitution is there, right? And so you can say this, ultimately the democratic process has its way. The problem in the Israeli context is not the fact of an override clause. In fact, there already is an override clause, right? The Knesset can change the underlying basic law anytime it wants, and it can do it without 61 votes. So what is this really changing? And the answer is, in terms of the raw power of the Knesset, it's changing nothing. It's changing only, and this is really, really important, 
how much political will it requires in order for the Knesset to work its will on the court. Under the current regime, the Knesset can do it with, you know, 25 or 35 votes, change a basic law, but they'd have to be willing to put their names on a law that says basic law, human dignity doesn't apply to Palestinians in this situation, right? Everybody gets human dignity except blah, 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 right? Except migrants who do X, right? And that's a really hard vote to take, to say that human rights don't actually apply in this situation. On the, co on the other hand, what this allows you to do is not change the underlying law, merely to dismiss the interpretation of the law, applying it in a specific instance. And that's a much, much politically easier vote to take, right? We're not saying that everybody doesn't have the right to human dignity or that there is an exception for X situation. We're merely saying that the court was wrong to interpret it as applying in this situation. And that's a permission structure, I think, for, you know, basically rule by exception. Um, I think it's very dangerous. Um, I think there is a really interesting question. How high would the number have to be? What's the threshold above which you say this is a reasonable check on a very powerful court? I wouldn't presume to make that decision on behalf of the, you know, Israeli population of which I'm not a part. I do think the idea that the government alone can do it denudes judicial review of a lot of of its meaning. And you know, even though this is a democratically elected government, poll after poll after poll shows that Israeli people favor uh, on a popular basis. Um, uh, keeping more power in the court's hands and uh, and not handing over so much to the party that happens to be in power. Although I'm I'm not sure that speaks to me all that much because if it were wildly popular to do this and structurally unsound, I would still oppose it. I think the I think the the key question is, or at least to my mind, the key question is: Should the government whose actions are being reviewed? be the vehicle through which permission is granted to the court to engage in that review, or should there be some external check that doesn't depend on the government's will, right? And if you have only a 61-vote majority required to overturn a ruling, you're saying you have judicial review if we let you and only if. It seems to me that's got that's structurally very unsound. Let's touch on some of the other three elements of this initial proposal, because they say this is only a first step. Judge selection, giving the government control over the selection of judges. Currently, we have nine members on the selection panel, and under the Levine plan, uh, that number would be increased to 11. There would be seven from the coalition. Uh, there would be one opposition member of Knesset and as now there would be three judges. Uh, there were two members of the Israel Bar Association. They're currently part of the committee. They would be removed under the plan. 
but the committee requires seven votes to approve new judges, and these changes would essentially give the coalition complete control over the selection process because the judges would be so outnumbered that approvals could happen even without any of them agreeing, and this addresses one of the critiques of the current situation, a clubby insiderness of judges picking other judges. Advocates of this plan say, hey, judicial appointments in America are completely political. What's the problem here? Do you have a response to that? Yeah. So I hate the Israeli system for appointing judges. Um, and I don't I, I don't like the sort of committee that is composed of a lot of uh, or a, a, a is currently composed, used to be composed of mostly members of the judiciary is now composed, I think, by a third of it. Um I, I don't love that system. That said, the uh, American system, which is, by the way, no great shakes either, is all political, but it's political from two separate branches, right? The president nominates and the Senate confirms, and that can be very contentious, by the way, as anybody who's watched our Supreme Court nomination process in recent years, uh, that is not a, you know, a system in which the president simply names whoever he wants. Uh, it can operate that way in periods of unified party control, but it can also operate as the Senate basically stopping or slow rolling very large numbers of nominations. So I, I don't think the problem with this, with this proposal is that it puts too much weight in the political process. The problem is it puts all of the political weight in the ruling party or the ruling coalition. So you have a majority of the committee that would come from the ruling coalition. As you say, it does. It would could do whatever it wants uh, without hearing from anybody else. Again, like the judicial review mechanism, which becomes subject to the will of the majority coalition, this makes the committee subjects to the will of the majority coalition, again, putting, I think, much too much power in the hands of the government. Moving on to the third part of the plan, the reform wants to revoke the reasonability or reasonableness. That's the basis that the high court uses to review all government actions. Because of the lack of a constitutional structure, administrative review of the government is the only thing standing in the way of the prime minister doing whatever he wants, being the minister of justice for himself and um, holding all of the ministerial portfolios himself. And this reform is considered urgent, uh, needs to be done ASAP, because the appointment of Shas's Aryeh Derry as a senior minister with his corruptions convictions is now, as we speak, under review by the Supreme Court after many petitions challenging the reasonableness of his appointment. The attorney general has already said she can't defend that appointment. So reasonableness is designed to prevent the government from passing crazy, arbitrary decisions and not abusing its authority. Now, the U.S. doesn't have this right because it has other checks and balances built into the system, right? So what do you think of Israel getting rid of it? Okay, so I, this is a very complicated issue for me. As I said before, the Israeli Supreme Court is a uniquely powerful institution among courts because it has this original jurisdiction over challenges to government policy, including this reasonableness review. This causes early judicial review of all kinds of things that 
to an American law, courts shouldn't be anywhere near as early in the process as they are. That said, I, I think your point is the key one is that this is one of the few checks that exists in the Israeli system on the government. So think about in the United States, just as the, the extreme other contrast, okay, you would never, you don't like the appointment of Alejandro Mayorkas uh, to be uh, Secretary of, of, of uh, Homeland Security because you don't like the way he has handled border issues or will handle border issues. You're not going to go to the Supreme Court to deal with that, right? But it is subject to Senate confirmation. Senate is an independent check on the executive. Uh, in addition, there are border states that have independent authorities. Uh, so we have divided sovereignty between the states and the federal government. And within the federal government, he's subject to ongoing oversight by the Senate. It's it's an independent branch of government from the executive that appointed him. And so you have lots of different, you even have cities in the United States that say, okay, we're sanctuary cities. We're not going to help the federal government enforce immigration law, right? So you have a lot of different levels of government and branches of government that are capable of pushing back on Alejandro Mayorkas, by the way, who I have no problem with and think is doing uh, a fine job. I just picked him randomly. By contrast, if you are somebody who objects to the appointment of Valladere, the Knesset is he's not subject to review by an independent legislature for confirmation. There's no, you know, state of Arizona or state of Texas that's going to push back on his policies and will bring him to court over and over again, right? There's no, you know, sanctuary city that says we're not going to, you know, cooperate with the health ministry, you know, or local jurisdiction that's going to say uh, the interior ministry doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, have jurisdiction. We're not going to cooperate with them here. And so I, I think there's a, you know, there's a profound structural difference. And when you, I'm not opposed at all to take, you know, to ch a change that would limit reasonableness review, but you have to replace it with something, right? There has to be something other than pure parliamentary supremacy which in the Israeli context, because the parliament actually doesn't do very much, it delegates everything to the government, becomes a kind of a dictatorship of the cabal of the government, which is only subject to the government falling. So finally, uh, point number four, uh, legislation that would allow ministers to appoint their own legal advisors instead of getting counsel from advisors subordinate to the attorney general. Um, and it's not in this first proposal, but there's a lot of talk about, you know, the next steps being dividing up the job of attorney general, um, who is in Israel, both legal advisor to the executive branch and the chief prosecutor of the state, which is kind of a tricky situation. The coalition parties want to split up these roles so that the state's chief prosecutor would be autonomous and not subordinate to the attorney general. And the legal establishment deeply and unanimously uh, opposes the split. So you've spoken before about the differences between the role of attorney general in the Israel and in the U.S. What do you make of this attempt to divide and weaken the role of attorney general and the office, the justice ministry in Israel? There's actually two questions here, and they're 
they're separately important, and I, I want to treat them separately. The first is the question of the legals, legal advisors within the different ministries. So I'm a weird beast professionally. Uh, there is no level of Israeli government that I have dealt with more uh, deeply or consistently than legal advisors to ministries for just reasons related to what I do. This is an exceptional group of people, um, just in terms of their capabilities, their political independence, their uh, their intellectual accomplishment, uh, and uh, the idea that you know pe people are talking about this in terms of the a war on the office of the attorney general. But we should pause a moment and say, as as an initial matter, it's an attack on the idea of of these extremely high quality civil servants embedded in uh, ministries who are actually capable of giving binding legal advice uh, with a certain degree of professional autonomy. And that that is a remarkable thing. It is a, it is a, a genuine accomplishment of the Israeli legal establishment that and the Israeli government as it has developed that this group of people exists. Um, and it is, I think, one of the very dangerous ideas in this proposal that you would make war on this and make these people subordinate to the government and to the, the individual ministers. Sometimes the legal advisor to the minister's job is to tell him, you can't do that. It's it's not lawful, right? Or do it this way, not this way, or we can we can work on this policy proposal, but we can't do X, right? And that is way, way, way harder to do if you are sub subordinate to that person in a fashion that makes your job dependent on them. So the second issue is the, you know, weakening of the role of the attorney general. And I just want to say for American listeners, when we talk about the Israeli attorney generalship, this is has no relation or almost no relation to the role of the U.S. attorney general. It's the same name, but it's a very different office. I, I mean, this is the part of this reform that is most directly responsive to Netanyahu's legal problems. The previous attorney general, right, ultimately gave the go-ahead for the prosecution and could, I suppose, theoretically pull the plug on the prosecution either at this stage or at some later stage. And so the idea that the attorney general should not merely be named by the government, but should be, you know, subordinate to the government is part of this same issue that played out before the government was formed with respect to the uh, police commissioner, right? And the the police's subordination to uh, to the minister uh, on policy matters and sort of on investigative matters. And so I think this is the part of it that is most corrupt in the sense of, except I suppose the, the reasonableness review as to Derry, but there's a real policy issue there. Here, I don't think there is a real policy issue. This is just an area where the system is working and Netanyahu has decided that it's working too well and at his expense. And so he is 
for very self-interested reasons, interested in making sure the attorney general is subordinate to the government. And I think this is the part where there's really no interesting policy issue to discuss, just the self-interest of the people involved. How do you see all of this affecting the U.S.-Israel relationship and the relationship between Israel and American Jews like you? We always talk about shared values and the only democracy in the Middle East, etc. And I have to you know, emphasize this is especially happening at a time when we have an Israeli government that flatly rejects a two-state solution, is actively doing everything it can to undermine it, which already is you know, putting it uh, in conflict with official uh, U.S. foreign policy. I, I would love to say that American Jews will rise up in anger and protest at the structural democratic or anti-democratic nature of Israeli judicial reforms. But that's a lot of nonsense. It won't happen. American Jews of a non-Orthodox bent are already pretty uncomfortable with a lot of Israeli policy, um, particularly on Palestinian and human rights issues. They are very supportive of Israel as an entity, um, but they are uh, in broad strokes, uh, and particularly the younger they are, the less comfortable they are with Israeli policy, and that there's not a lot of patience in the American uh, non-religious nationalist community for things like, you know, aggressive settlement building and there's a lot of support for things like the two-state solution. So you're already operating against a backdrop of uh, a certain degree of friction um, with American Jewish values. This is pretty technical con law stuff. And I don't think the average American Jew cares very much or will even stop to think very much about the question of how many votes it should take to override a Supreme Court opinion in Israel. And moreover, they've never even heard of reasonableness review. So it's not, it may contribute to some generic sentiment that there's a, you know, that bad stuff is happening in Israel and that Netanyahu is a something like a Richard Nixon or a Donald Trump. It's not, I don't think it's going to be the flashpoint that triggers any kind of rupture. The, the much more substantial issues for American Jews are human rights issues and, frankly, religious freedom issues. Uh, um, American Jews are, of course, much more religious in, in a non-Orthodox sense than Israeli Jews are, and there's a lot of of resentment at the dismissal by the Israeli religious authorities of conservative and reform rabbis and institutions, which is, of course, what most American Jews affiliate with. Based on the fact that Israel has fought tooth and nail at every turn at attempts to bring it into any kind of international courts, international adjudication for its uh, actions in the West Bank and elsewhere, do you feel that if this legislation goes through, it's weakened judiciary, the elimination of judicial review is going to make it more vulnerable to this happening? It will certainly make it more vulnerable. The reason is that the strength of the Israeli judicial system is one of the arguments that Israel makes 
um, about why international tribunals should not get involved. Um, and it's actually one of their best arguments. And they have, if you read submissions that they make to these uh, courts and arguments that they make about them, the argument goes something like this. First of all, you have no jurisdiction over the conflict. But secondly, we have this robust judicial system. We have lawyers attached to every army unit that are reviewing operations for legality under under the law of armed conflict. We have uh, courts. We have a very independent Supreme Court that gets involved in battlefield decisions sometimes and swats government policy down and reviewed the very wall that you're now thinking of reviewing. Um, and so we have all these systems to keep ourselves in line. And you're supposed to get involved only when countries are unable or uh, unwilling to look at their own legal conduct. And that's not the case here. I think that's a much weaker argument if you imagine a situation where the Knesset has passed some very offensive law to, you know, international justice standards. The, the Israeli Supreme Court has struck it down. And then the Knesset has said, yeah, you know, to hell with you. We're doing it anyway. You know, I, I do think an international tribunal is likely to look at that situation and say, hey, um, you say you have all these great institutions, but you reserve the right to ignore them in the circumstances in which they most matter. And that's what you did here. So, Ben, you said you've had these positive interactions with legal experts in Israel, with the system in Israel. As a legal expert uh, who deals with the Israeli system, what are your feelings going forward about engaging with the system following this reform should it, all of the elements pass? You know, it's a very, very hard question for me. And my my engagement with Israeli legal culture has been pretty deep over a lot of years. And the premise of that engagement has always been that Israel is a complex, imperfect democracy that is using law to struggle with very, very hard problems. And, you know, the 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 masthead of the slogan of lawfare, the, the site that I run, is hard national security choices. And I got interested in the Israeli uh, legal system because Israel was facing a lot of similar hard national security choices that the United States faced in the period after 9-11 and had been doing so for a long time. And so it was a really interesting way to look at the way another uh, highly legalistic democratic society engaged a series of questions. And I've been criticized over the years and both mostly at, at a personal level, you know, people just talking to me now, you know, Israel's not really a democracy. It's not really a, and, and my answer to that has always been, no, actually that's, that's wrong. Uh, I mean, however much you may criticize Israeli democracy, however imperfect it is, it is actually a society that is functioning under law and rules and responding to very hard questions through that framework. And I look at this reform and I say, I'm not sure that would be true anymore. And, I, I, you know, that you, if you imagine these reforms passed 
in full bloom as the justice minister is contemplating them or proposing them, you would have a situation in which the government could name the court over time uh, without substantial input from anybody else. It would limit the court's ability to review government conduct. And in situations in which the court did review it and found uh, a law unconstitutional or in conflict with basic law, it could ignore it. And that actually doesn't feel to me like a society of law. That feels to me like a sort of Athenian uh, kind of raw populist democracy. And I find you know, the struggles of such a society much less interesting. I, I would have a hard time engaging that as a society that is sort of struggling with hard problems under the rule of law. I would look much more to me like a, a country that is struggling with hard problems under kind of simple majoritarian populism. And so I, I, I do think just at a personal level, and I would, would never tell anybody else how to behave. I do think it would change very fundamentally my regard for the integrity of the Israeli legal system. Ben Witties, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to my guest, Ben Witties, and to my producer and editor, Shani Aviram. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>